If you were making a list of the sexiest or most interesting animals in the forest, possums, Canada geese, squirrels, and robins wouldn't make the top of the list. Heck, they might not even make the bottom of the list. Three of the four are such a common sight that unless we get lucky enough to have a nest nearby so we get to see babies, or they're causing us a problem, we don't give them a second thought. With the possum, it's the opposite, since they're nocturnal and more frequently seen as roadkill than roaming around. We tend to forget about them altogether unless one startles us when we're taking out the trash. But I want to show you that there is more to these animals than most people know, and what you think you know might not be entirely accurate. I'm willing to bet that I can tell you something about one of these animals that might surprise you and hopefully give you a new appreciation for these overlooked and underappreciated familiar backyard species. Hello, wild wanderers. I'm your host, Tim, the nature nerd O'Hara, and this is Dispatches from the Forest. Even if you're a nature lover, and if you're listening to this podcast, I'm kind of assuming that you are, you probably haven't done much research on possums, geese, squirrels, or robins. And that's not a criticism, it's just that these species are so common, we tend to think we already know everything worth knowing about them. Things like possums play dead, geese fly south for the winter and north for the summer in great big V's, Squirrels bury their nuts in the fall, and the ones they forget grow into new trees, and robins return in the spring and lay blue eggs. But what if I told you that some of these facts may not be entirely true? Let's see if I can surprise you. Let's start with the possum and addressing the possum in the room. Is it spelled P-O-S-S-U-M or O-P-O-S-S-U-M? And is the O silent or is it pronounced opossum? Well, to start with, if you want to get technical and be scientifically accurate, possum and opossum are two different species. Both are marsupials, but possum with no O live in Australia and are more closely related to kangaroos. Opossum with an O live in North America. But that said, both spellings and pronunciations are acceptable. Personally, I've always gone with the O in the spelling, but silent in the pronunciation. The Virginia possum is the only marsupial in the United States and Canada. Adult possums are about the size of a house cat with a pointy nose and a hairless tail. Honestly, they do resemble a big rat. I think they're kind of cute, but I suspect I'm in the minority. Another interesting thing about possum is that their reproduction is the stuff of myth and legend. The male possum has a bifurcated penis, and if I ever start a punk rock band, that is definitely going to be the name. But it means that he has two penises, like a two-pronged fork. Now, this unusual appendage led to the belief by early colonists that the male impregnated the female through her nose, and she would then sneeze the young into her pouch. This is absolutely not true. Now, a two-pronged penis is strange, but it's okay, because the female possum has a bifurcated reproductive tract too. Basically, two of everything. And while this is the path of fertilization, it's not the path that the young take to be born. Instead, the young pass from the two uteri to what's called the pseudo or median vaginal canal, which just kind of appears like magic when the time is right. It's basically just a separation of the connective tissues. 
and it disappears again shortly after the female gives birth. Because it's a marsupial, the young, called joeys, just like kangaroo, are born at a very early stage of development, right around two weeks gestation. Possum give birth to up to 20 joeys at a time, which must then make their way to the mother's pouch and latch onto a tee. It's a short but perilous journey and usually less than half survive. Once in the pouch, they stay there for three to four months before emerging, sometimes riding on their mother's back while she hunts. In addition to being the only marsupial in the United States and Canada, they have the most teeth of any land mammal in these countries, with 50 in that pointy little snout, which probably contributes to people's aversion to them. Possum have an opposable thumb on their rear foot and a prehensile tail. They can use it to help climb and stabilize themselves. A common misconception about possums is that they hang by their tails to sleep, kind of like bats. But that's a myth. While they might hang by their tail briefly, it's just not strong enough to support their weight for longer than maybe a minute or two. While they may show that mouthful of teeth to a potential predator to try and scare it away, they rarely bite. Possum prefer to avoid conflict, usually choosing to flee. You probably know that possum play dead, hence the term playing possum. And while this does happen, it is actually relatively rare and is usually seen in younger animals. When it does happen, it's an involuntary response, like fainting. Their body will stiffen, lips will draw back to bare the teeth, saliva will form around the mouth, and a foul-smelling liquid will be secreted from the anal glands. They remain in this catatonic state anywhere from a few minutes to several hours. At one time, possum were hunted for food as well as for their pelts in the United States, particularly in the South. There were even possum farms. Can you imagine being a possum rancher? Possum and sweet potatoes was a popular combination and good enough to serve to presidents. In 1909, Atlanta held a possum and taters banquet to honor President-elect William Howard Taft. President Jimmy Carter was known to hunt possum, and Mark Twain included broiled possum in his list of favorite foods that he wanted to eat when returning from a trip to Europe. Possum are omnivores and scavengers. They will raid garbage cans and are attracted to roadkill, which is probably why they often become roadkill themselves. They also eat plants, nuts, and fruit, and will hunt mice, worms, insects, and have even been known to attack domestic chickens. They also eat snakes. In fact, larger possums are immune to rattlesnake venom. One last cool thing about possums, you don't have to worry about being attacked by a rabid possum. They are immune or at least highly resistant to rabies. Okay, let's move on to Canada geese. And yes, it really is Canada and not Canadian. I know it sounds weird, but it is technically correct. You see them in parks, on golf courses, in fields, almost any open area with a water source nearby. They're easy to recognize with their black head and neck and white chin strap, except that the cackling goose looks exactly the same. In fact, until 2004, the five subspecies of cackling goose were considered subspecies of Canada goose. Cackling geese nest in the tundra of Alaska and Canada, migrating south in the winter. So with the exception of the summer when they're nesting far to the north, those geese you see with the white chin strap could possibly be cackling geese. Cackling geese, though, tend to be smaller than Canada geese, though there is some overlap. The largest cackling geese and the smallest Canada geese are about the same size. But cackling geese have a shorter neck and a smaller bill. 
In terms of calls, cackling geese are a bit squeakier. compared to the Canada Goose's distinctive honk. There are seven subspecies of Canada Goose. The smallest is the Lesser Canada Goose, which measures about two and a half feet long with a four-foot wingspan and weighs about six pounds. The largest is the giant Canada goose, which can get up to three and a half feet long, has a wingspan of over six feet, and weighs up to 14 pounds. Female geese are generally about 10% smaller than males. Do you know why geese fly south in the winter? Because it's too far to walk. <laughs> now, you know that geese fly in a V shape, but do you know why one side is longer than the other? Because there's more geese on that side. <laughs> okay, seriously though, geese are well known for flying in a V-shape during migration. Other migratory birds like ducks, swans, and pelicans also employ this tactic, and they do for two reasons. The first is conservation of energy. The lead bird at the pointy end of the V is doing most of the work. The rest of the birds fly slightly above the bird in front of them, taking advantage of the reduced wind resistance. They're drafting like NASCAR drivers or cyclists. They will even synchronize their wing beats to maximize efficiency. Birds in the V use 20 to 30% less energy and can go 71% farther than a lone bird. Dumb jokes aside, one side of the V is usually longer because geese don't normally fly directly into the wind. So the downwind side of the formation is usually longer because that's where the wind resistance is at its least. When the lead bird gets tired, it drops back in the line and another bird takes its place. Geese average about 40 miles per hour and up to 70 if they get a strong tailwind and flying in this formation lets them travel about 1500 miles per day when the weather conditions are right. The second reason geese fly in a V-shape is that it lets them keep track of all the birds in the flock. Fighter pilots use a V-formation for the same reason. Interesting fact about geese, if an individual goose is sick or injured and drops out of the formation, two other geese will go with it. They'll stay with that sick goose until it can fly again or until it dies. But another interesting thing about geese, while they can fly 1,500 miles per day when migrating, not all species of Canada geese are long-distance migrants. Some subspecies, like the giant Canada goose, spend all or most of their time in the lower 48 states, only migrating as far south as necessary to find food and open water. These are known as resident species. Believe it or not, in the early 1900s, these resident Canada geese had been almost eliminated from much of their range by unregulated hunting, egg collection, and habitat destruction. In fact, in the 1930s, the giant Canada goose was thought to be extinct. But in the 1960s, a remnant population was discovered. Present-day populations are the result of reintroduction from captive flocks that had been kept for either food or for use as live decoys. Resident Canada geese are grazers and prefer new growth grasses and sedges, but they sometimes grub for roots and tubers. 
They also make extensive use of waste cereal grains during the fall and winter, which is why you will see them in the stubble of harvested cornfields. Their adaptable feeding habits and ability to live near humans have let them exploit urban landscapes with ponds surrounded by manicured grass, like you would find in parks and golf courses, in addition to agricultural landscapes. In short, human-induced changes to the landscape have essentially provided resident Canada goose populations with ideal living conditions, plenty of food, good habitat, safety from hunting, and a reduced risk of predation. Geese mate for life. They have relatively low reproductive rates, but high survival rates of their chicks. In addition, they have a relatively long lifespan, averaging anywhere between 10 and 24 years. Long-distance migration is a dangerous and high-energy activity. In contrast, resident species nest at a younger age, have larger clutches, and the highest survival rates. Migrant geese generally nest in the tundra where the weather can have significant impact on nesting success. A late-season snowstorm can result in nest failure and leave no time to try again before the young would need to fly south. Resident species don't have these kind of time constraints. They have the luxury of being able to have a second clutch if the first nesting attempt is unsuccessful. That's why control efforts often involve oiling the eggs so they don't hatch. Remove the eggs and the geese just lay more. Oiling the eggs results in the geese attempting unsuccessfully to incubate them until it's too late to lay more. It sounds mean, but in some places, these resident species have been so successful that they've actually become pests. Now let's get squirrely, or go nuts. Anyways, let's talk about squirrels. You know them, you love them, unless that is they've moved into your attic or start digging in your garden. Then maybe not so much. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Gray squirrel, gray squirrel, shake your bushy tail. Gray squirrel, gray squirrel, shake your bushy tail. Take a peanut in your hand and shove it up your nose. Gray squirrel, gray squirrel, shake your bushy tail. Thank you. There are two species of squirrel you're likely to see in Omaha and Fontenelle Forest. Fox squirrels, those are the big reddish-brown ones, and the smaller gray squirrel, which are, well, gray. Fox squirrels like open stands of trees with little understory vegetation. They're not generally found in forests with dense undergrowth. Their ideal habitat is small stands of large trees interspersed with agricultural land, which, minus the agriculture, sounds a lot like a typical suburban housing area. Fox squirrels also commonly occupy the edges of forested areas. Gray squirrels, on the other hand, prefer a mature, dense, hardwood forest, but can also be found in open habitats as long as there are trees available. You've also probably noticed black-colored squirrels and wondered what kind of squirrels those are. The answer is that they are also either fox squirrels or gray squirrels. Both species can be black in color. The color is just genetic. Some research has suggested that the black coloring is an advantage for squirrels living in colder climates. The dark fur absorbs more warmth even on cloudy days. And this seems to make sense since black morphs of gray squirrels are the majority of the population in the northern Great Lakes region and northward into Ontario, Canada. Studies have shown that black colored gray squirrels lose less heat and have a lower metabolic rate in colder temperatures. 
However, black fox squirrels are more likely to be found in the southeastern United States, the warmer part of their range. Another possibility is that the black color provides better camouflage in certain environments. Again, some historical research has suggested that the black morph of gray squirrels used to be much more common, but declined as European settlers thinned the forest. The dark fur would have been an advantage in the dense dark forest, the lighter gray more of an advantage in the thinner lighter forest. Likewise, black squirrels are more common in the dense conifer forests of the north, conifers allowing less light to reach the forest floor even in the winter. However, this theory hits a snag when we remember that Ontario, where black squirrels comprise the majority of the population, is mostly open agricultural land without a lot of trees. In fox squirrels, it's been shown that the lighter color provides more camouflage when standing still, and the darker color is better concealment when the squirrel is in motion. In some places where there are large populations of black squirrels, it's just because they were intentionally introduced there. In Washington, D.C., 18 black morph gray squirrels were released on the National Mall in 1902 and 1906 by Teddy Roosevelt, possibly as part of a larger effort to revitalize gray squirrel populations decimated by hunting. Populations in Battle Creek, Michigan were introduced by John Harvey Kellogg, yep, the cornflake guy, in 1915 for the same reasons. In the late 50s and early 60s, some of these black morphs were trapped and released on the campus of Michigan State University in East Lansing at the request of the university's president. In Council Bluffs, Iowa, black fox squirrels have been around since at least 1840. Since 1930, Council Bluffs has had a city ordinance making it illegal to, quote, annoy, worry, maim, injure, or kill black squirrels. Whatever color they are, squirrels are quite clever. Now, it's common knowledge that squirrels bury nuts and the ones they forget about sprout into new trees. Except, that's probably not entirely true. Do they bury nuts? Absolutely. Do they sometimes forget where they buried some? Well... They only recover about 25% of all the nuts they bury, but it's probably not because of forgetfulness. First of all, squirrels, like other animals that cache food for the winter, tend to cache more than they need. This ensures that they will still have enough in the event that some of their cached nuts get found by other animals or lost to another event like a flood or an exceptionally deep snow. On a bit of a side note, to help prevent theft, squirrels will sometimes pretend to cache a nut if it thinks another squirrel is around. It'll dig a hole, pretend to put the nut in it, fill the hole in, but keep the nut in its mouth and hide it someplace else. Fox squirrels and gray squirrels are what we call scatter hoarders. They bury nuts around a wide area. A 2017 study from the University of California, Berkeley, showed evidence that squirrels don't just randomly bury their nuts, though. They use a mnemonic device called chunking to organize their caches. To put it plainly, they sort their nuts, burying different types of nuts together in the same general area. In addition, squirrels know the difference between different species of oak tree. A squirrel collecting acorns will eat white oak acorns right away, but cache red oak acorns for later. Why is that? Well, white oak acorns germinate in the fall, meaning they won't keep through the winter the way red oak acorns will. As winter turns into spring, some of the buried nuts will start to sprout before the squirrel returns. Again, 
It's not a case of the squirrel forgetting so much as it's a case of the acorn reaching its expiration date, at least as it relates to being squirrel food. Not only are squirrels clever, but they're quite acrobatic as well, which isn't too surprising for an animal that lives its life leaping through the tree branches. If you ever want to go down a YouTube hole, look up squirrel obstacle courses. It's pretty entertaining to watch these furry critters parkour their way to a tree. But one of the most interesting observations to come from these obstacle courses has to do with the way a squirrel lands when jumping or falling. Like cats, squirrels will usually land on their feet. In the event of an unexpected fall, a squirrel will pick its landing spot, lock in on it with its eyes, and rotate its body by tucking its limbs in when it wants to rotate and extending them when it wants to stop, like a figure skater does when doing a spin. And they take only 300 milliseconds to make the calculations necessary to land not only on their feet, but exactly where they want to. In addition, squirrels can usually survive a fall from pretty much any height. Being small and light, a falling squirrel experiences less pull from gravity. A falling squirrel will flatten its body, which, combined with their puffy tail, increases drag, meaning that their terminal velocity, or the maximum speed they will fall, is reduced. Upon landing, they use their legs like shock absorbers. Put this all together and it means that a squirrel hitting the ground at its terminal velocity is likely to be just fine. I once saw a squirrel fall from a height of about 30 feet to the street and immediately run back up the tree. Squirrels are such a common sight in backyards and in the city that it will probably surprise you to learn that by the mid-1800s, squirrels had pretty much been eradicated in most major cities. They actually had to be reintroduced into cities after parks were built and trees replanted. Another problem had to be overcome too. People. People had to learn to stop shooting the squirrels and start feeding the squirrels. Early attempts at reintroduction, and I'm talking about the 1840s here, failed because people killed the squirrels, fearing that they would disturb birds and lead to insect problems. In the 1870s, large parks were being built in cities like New York, Chicago, Washington, D.C., and Boston. Squirrels were reintroduced to add, quote, beauty and interest to the parks, to entertain people and remind them of nature. Feeding squirrels was also seen as a way to teach children to be kind. They began to thrive in the urban environment, a process known as synurbanization. And that, friends, is your trivia word of the day. Synanthropes are animals that live near and benefit from association with people. If you can lay that down the next time you're playing Scrabble, you're a guaranteed winner. Other synanthropes are possums that we already talked about, pigeons, rats, and raccoons. But lest you get the idea that they're all cute and fuzzy, bedbugs, cockroaches, and lice are also synanthropes. Finally, I want to take a look at the American robin. Why? Well, frankly, because my wife asked me to, and thinking about the robin is what sent me down this path of looking for the remarkable aspects of common animals. And American robins are the very definition of common. They are the most abundant bird in North America, with around 370 million individuals. They're named after the European robin because of a passing resemblance, although the two species are not closely related at all. European robins are a member of the flycatcher family. 
American robins are members of the thrush family. So just to be clear, when I say robin, I'm referring to the American robin. And for the record, the poor robin has one of the worst scientific names, Turtus migratorius. Sorry, but I'm an adolescent at heart, and it makes me giggle a little every time because it sounds like migratory turd. On the upside, it's one of the few scientific names that will stick in my memory. Robins are probably best known for laying blue eggs. They're actually some of the first birds to lay eggs in the spring, building a bowl-shaped nest on a flat surface using twigs and grasses held together with mud. If you've ever seen a robin's nest, you know it's quite a solid structure. We had the good fortune to have a robin nest on our porch a few years ago. The porch had pillars, and they really wanted to build in the gap between two of the pillars, but the nesting material kept falling through. So I gave them a hand, I provided a platform that they gladly used to build a rock-solid nest, and we got to see them hatch and raise a brood up close. Robins line their nest with grasses and plant material and lay three to seven eggs, which hatch in about two weeks. Only two more weeks after hatching, the young leave the nest or fledge. Frequently, the male will attend to the fledged young while the female lays a second brood, and sometimes even a third. Male robins have a complex and almost continuous song. It's made up of discrete, often repeated units and combined into a string with brief pauses in between. Song style varies slightly by region and time of day. In the spring and summer, they're usually the first birds to start singing in the morning, sometimes starting hours before dawn, and some of the last birds to sing in the evening. Robins are also known to sing just before and just after storms, maybe because of the twilight nature of the light. Aside from blue eggs, robins are usually known for eating worms. They forage on the ground and find worms primarily by sight, usually in the early morning when the ground is wet with dew and the worms have come to the surface. There is some evidence to suggest that they can also hear the worms just under the surface and are able to locate them that way too. I guess the early bird really does get the worm. In addition to worms, robins will eat insects, seeds, fruits, and berries. And that brings us to the third thing robins are known for. Returning in the spring. We get excited, don't we, when we see that first robin of spring? The long winter is finally over. They've become a symbol of spring. And it was thought that whoever saw the first robin of spring would have good luck. My wife grew up stamping robins. When she sees a robin on the ground, she licks her right thumb, presses it into the palm of her left hand, then stamps her left palm with the bottom of her right fist, like the rock in rock, paper, scissors. It's supposed to bring good luck. That's part of why she wanted me to do a podcast on robins. She wanted to know if stamping robins was a thing or if her dad was, and I quote, just crazy. So I did a little research into this, and it is indeed a thing, much to my wife's relief. One source suggested that it may be a tradition that comes from the Pennsylvania Dutch, and this tracks. My wife is from Indiana, and her parents were both born and raised Amish. She has an aunt and a whole load of cousins that are still Amish. 
Good luck or not, that first robin of spring may not have traveled as far as you think. Most people, myself included until recently, if we even thought about it at all, assume that robins, like many other birds, migrate to some exotic, tropical southern location for the winter. If we even really give it much of a thought, we almost imagine that while we're battling sub-zero temperatures and shoveling endless snow, they're soaking up the sun. But as it turns out, that may not be the case. As I mentioned, in winter, robins eat more seeds, fruits, and berries, which may still be available in their summer range. Some resources say that robins follow the 37-degree isotherm, the geographical line where the temperature stays above 37 degrees, both southward in the fall and back northward in the spring. And that may be true for some, but once I started paying attention, I began to see robins all winter long at Fontenelle Forest. And we know that winters in Omaha get a whole lot colder than 37 degrees. It turns out that robins form flocks in the winter, grouping together in a much smaller, more localized area, like, say, Fontenelle Forest, where they can find shelter and food, meaning that you're just less likely to see them. When we start to see robins in the spring, it may not be that they've returned from some long, arduous migration, but that the flock has broken up and they're starting to look for good nesting sites. Don't get me wrong, it's still a sign of spring and a reason to get excited. It's just that that robin may not be returning from as far away as you thought, maybe just across town. So go ahead and stamp that first robin of spring. Maybe you'll get lucky and it will nest on your porch. And with that, my wild wanderers, we come to the end of this episode of Dispatches from the Forest. Hopefully, you learned something new about possums, geese, squirrels, or robins that surprised you and will make you appreciate them a little more, see them in a little bit of a different light. Don't forget to leave us a like and subscribe so that you know about all the new episodes. And if you'd like to throw some support our way, feel free to head over to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. Have a message for me? Send me an email, dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com. I'm your host, Tim, the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. Gray squirrel, gray squirrel, shake your bushy tail. Gray squirrel, gray squirrel, shake your bushy tail. Put a nut between your toes, wrinkle up your little nose. Gray squirrel, gray squirrel, shake your bushy tail. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast without express written permission.